Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here, and welcome back to the History of Everything. How are you doing tonight, my hoes? Hi guys, I'm Gabby. And I'm sure, again, you've probably already noticed that we have advertisements on our podcast. It's something that's necessary for us to grow. But if you are looking for an ad-free experience, then feel free to check out our Patreon. There are a variety of different tiers. And in some tiers, you can get requested videos once a month. In one of the tiers, there's an option to have like a one-hour-long like video call with Stack once a month. There's a lot of cool stuff, so check it out. Basically, we're trying to develop things to the point that, hey, maybe we can release more content more frequently. The more support we get, the more we're able to push. He really wants to go full-time and also do bi-weekly, or not bi-weekly, twice-a-week podcast episodes. Wait, wouldn't that be bi-weekly? I thought or it was bi-weekly every was every two, two weeks. weeks. Oh my god, this is going to be a whole thing for language now from the start. We're going off on tangents from the beginning, and we haven't even started on the content. Anyway, this episode is about Whittle... You can't even read that. You're looking at my notes right now trying to determine this, but it's Polish. How do you say his last name? Pilecki. That is not... I know. I know. For those of you who are listening, for those of you who are listening, this is going to sound bad in some cases, and I apologize. I'm going to do the absolute best that I can, but a large number of the names that are in here are Polish and Russian. And you can probably imagine from that that things are going to be pronounced wrong. I'm... Trinidadian, I speak French and Spanish and English. I have no idea how European, like, those German-Russian languages work. This is Slavic. You definitely don't want to call them German because uh, there's a whole thing... I don't mean they're German. I'm just saying I don't know anything like German or Russian. Like, I don't know any of those languages. That's true. Because if you look at history, there is a whole point in history where the Germans tried to um, make that whole area German and non-Slavic for its peoples, which is... When we cover horrible things in the future, that is definitely one thing that we are going to talk about. And this actually does touch upon that. Oh. So with that, let's go ahead and kind of get into the meat of this. This is a thing that I more than likely on my TikTok would not be able to make content about this kind of subject. I can't really talk that much in detail about it because some of it is so horrible that it would cause me to get taken down. My video might be removed, my account banned, etc. It does not matter that it is something about education. It does not matter that it's teaching people about some of the horrors that humans are capable of and what we need to not do in the future. It's, it's just something that's bad. So with that, as I said, let's get into today's story. In history, there have been a number of people who have given up everything for an ideal cause, or when they were forced to, at least. But not nearly as many people voluntarily went back in time and time again when they could have easily have otherwise survived. This is the story of one such man. This right here is the story of Witzold Pletsky. 
He was a hero of Poland. Now, Politsky was born on the 13th of May, 1901, in the town of Olenitz Karlia, which was, at the time, in the Russian Empire. His ancestors had been deported to Russia for participating in the January 1863 to 1864 uprising, which, if there's one thing you know about the Poles and their history, they rebelled a lot. The Polish had, for the previous several hundred years, been in just constant varying states of occupation by one power or another, whether it was the Swedes, whether it was the Russians, whether it was the Germans, they were just continuously being taken over. The state of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had long passed by that point. Witzold was one of five children of a forest inspector named Julian Pletsky and Ludwika, and again, this is where I'm going to say things wrong, so I'm just going to say this, Osimietska. I'm probably butchering that. But that is that is what it sounds like when it is spelled. Now, in 1910, Witzold would move with his mother and siblings to Wilno, while his father remained in Olenets. In Wilno, at the age of 12 in 1913, Polutski attended a school where he joined an underground Polish scouting and guiding association called the ZHP. Now, when I say underground, I don't mean that as a way of like, um, it wasn't spelunking, you know. It wasn't an adventure group that is going down and exploring caves beneath Poland. Now, this shit was illegal. Like, he was bad. Well, he's bad in the eyes of the Russians. So today, if we actually go to the ZHP website, the Polish Scouting and Guiding Association, or ZHP, is registered as an independent legal entity in Poland, which provides dynamic, value-based, non-formal education leadership training for girls and boys between the age of 6 and 25. Its activities are open to all young people, regardless of origin, nationality, race, or creed. It aims to provide a safe environment for young people to develop their fullest potential as responsible and active citizens who participate in local, national, and international communities and all areas of society. Currently, the member of ZHP is over 90,000 girls and boys, as well as leaders. So what I want you to imagine, Ed, this is the direct quote that is from their website, which exists to this day. This is essentially the Boy Scouts. Like, this is, this, these are the scouts, but of Poland. And at the time, when it was founded, it wasn't this kind of adventure group kind of thing and leadership and skill-focused thing that it is now for, you know, more mundane things. Back in the old days, it was far more militaristic. The Polish scout movement was started in 1910, and initially the ideas of scouting were implemented by a man by the name of Andrzej Makalowski and his wife Olga. The three main branches of Polish scouting include the Streczlik, which again, I'm going to be butchering the pronunciation of, which was a paramilitary organization for boys, a sport education society called Sokol, and an anti-alcoholic association called Eleusis. An important part of the association's mission was training young Poles in military skills. Before World War I, the Rifleman's Association, which was... The, uh, the Streslik, that's like what it meant, was literally like the Polish Rifle Association. It provided military training to over 8,000 people, and its trainees subsequently formed an important part of the Polish legions that served in World War I. Now, as you can probably imagine from me describing this, the Russians did not particularly like the idea of Poles arming and training themselves for combat to gain independence, and thus the organization was illegal. Like, this was something that it was under the guise of, you know, teaching and educating young people, but really the primary goal of it was to train them in survival skills and military techniques in order to stage a rebellion. 
Like it, this was whole the whole purpose of the organization was to work towards Polish independence. Now, when World War One broke out, the Polecki family stayed in a spa resort at Druskalinkai. No, I'm butchering that. I'm going to read this. I have to look at it directly off my notes. Druskinin? Druskin? Gabby, can you try reading that? Look at that. Look at that. Druskininkai. Druskininkai. Okay, see, this is the exact thing I'm talking about, and I apologize that if we uh, deviate from the subject, because at times this will be very hard to pronounce for it. But he was at Drusk, which I'm just, that's what I'm going to call it. He was at Drusk for vacation and unable to reach Vilna. As the city could have been occupied by German forces or even more distant Olenets, Ludwika Pilitska took the children to her mother, who at the time lived in a place called Harviklov, which was in the Mogilev region. Now, Witzold sojourned back and forth from Oral uh, at the town of Maria Wineka, his, which was his mother's older sister. While there, he formed a scout unit of his own. In the spring of 1918, he took part in what might have been his first combat mission. Along with his friends, Witzold broke into a Russian military warehouse, seizing army uniforms and other pieces of equipment. Following the outbreak of the Russian Revolution and the defeat of the Central Powers in World War I, Pilecki returned to Wilna. Now, I want you to imagine this in the first place. So, the year is 1918. We have established that he was born in, what, what was it? What do I even have listed on here? 1901. The man is 17 years old, and he is engaged in his first military operation by breaking into a military compound and seizing weapons and uniforms. Like, at 17, I was far more concerned with what anime I was watching next. Like, this was his life. That's crazy. Yes, it was. So, as I said, he broke into this military warehouse in 1918, and he returned to Wilno, which, at the time, was part of the newly independent Polish Second Republic, which, at the end of World War I, when the Russian Empire was falling apart being, because it was being racked by an internal civil war and communism was on the rise, Poland broke away and formed its own state, which was the Second Polish Republic, and he joined the ZHP section of the Lithuanian and Belarusian Self-Defense Militia, which was a paramilitary formation uh, that was aligned with the white forces. White, in this case, it's not talking about race or anything like that. White, in the context of Russia and that region, means the old military and empire versus the reds. The reds, in this case, are the communists, the Soviets, the, the, the revolutionaries. So it's the whites versus the reds, and that's what that is referring to. So the militia disarmed any retreating German troops, and they took up positions to defend the city from a looming attack by the Soviet Red Army. However, Wilno fell to the Bolshevik, Bolshevik in this case, that is the Reds, on the 5th of January 1919, and Pilecki and his unit resorted to partisan warfare behind Soviet lines. He and his comrades then retreated back to Bielestok, where Pilecki enlisted in a Thurgoi, which, again, I'm butchering that, I'm sure, but that was effectively a, as a private in Poland's newly established volunteer army. He took part in the Polish-Soviet War of 1919 and 1921, serving under Captain Jerzy Drabowski, and he fought in the Kiev Offensive in 1920 as part of a cavalry unit defending the city of Grodno. So basically, I want you to imagine this here. So far, he has he was born in 1901. 
he was part of a paramilitary organization training teenagers in, you know, scouting and military tactics, like as a 13, 14, 15-year-old. By 17, he was breaking into military compounds to seize weapons, and then literally within one or two years, he was a cavalryman on the front line fighting in war. Like, so far, his entire life has just been fighting. So... Some background, because I'm not familiar with any of this history. Was Poland just occupied, or...? Yes. It was occupied, but it was controlled. It was a province and part of uh, the empire, so... And they Poland... didn't want to be part of... No, never did. Absolutely so never did. So they just trained everyone to fight for independence. Pretty much, yes. That makes a lot of sense. So Poland was continuous... It was divided three different times, if I recall correctly, there were three different partitions of Poland. And what that was, was that Austria-Hungary, Germany, Sweden, and Russia just over time divided what was Poland, which was a very massive super state for several hundred years. And it just divided this broken state so they in between them. broke up the culture and the peoples to make them part of the... That's kind of messed up. Yeah. Okay, that leads me into this. So Poland's okay now today, right? Well, yes, but... And this is the thing that if you ask any Polish person, like, for how they feel, Poland is very nationalistic. And it's with good reason. So people try to criticize the Poles where it's like, oh, why are they uh, anti-immigrant or any of these other things for it here? Poland quite literally has a continuous history of being invaded by people. For the past several hundred years... It has just been continuously invaded and its people divided and controlled. So it is fiercely independent and will do anything possible to maintain that independence. That's understandable. Like, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that, which that's just a thing that not many people think about until they really learn what Poland's history is like. So Polecki had made a name for himself while patrolling in the Rudniki forest near the village of Erginski, where along with his comrades, he managed to capture a machine gun firing position. He disarmed and took captive 80 Bolsheviks, and he took part in the fighting against the army in Kaunas, Lithuania. In January of 1921, Polecki was transferred to the reserve status to complete education and pass his school-leaving final exams in May of that year. Back then, he was fluent in Russian, German, and French. He also got briefly enlisted as an auditing student at the Faculty of Fine Arts in Stefan Batory University in Vilna, but he had to leave because of financial problems. His dad got sick and things just were not looking well for them, so he had to leave school and return to working. So at this point, the year is 1922. Paletsky is 21 years old and he has spent half of his life in a state of rebellion and war. Like, if I was going to describe this guy's life as tumultuous, that would be a severe understatement. But this is a life that made him hard, and a highly skilled man, as well as a fierce proponent of Polish independence and pride. That year, or rather in the following years prior to World War II, that cemented this. In July of 1925, Polecki was assigned to the 26th Lancer Regiment with the rank of Chorzy, which is an ensign. Polecki would be promoted to Poroprocznik, which was a second lieutenant with seniority from 1923, and the following year. Also in 1926, in September, Polecki became the owner of his family's ancestral estate in Sukurs in the Lida district of the Norogrodsk Voivodeship, which, again, I am butchering all these Slavic names in there, and I apologize for anyone that is listening. In 1931, he married a woman by the name of Maria Ostroka. They had two children, born in Wilno, Andrei, which was in 1932, and Zofia in 1933. 
Plutsky was very active in his local community. He was the chairman of a dairy, and he founded the Farmers Association there. He also organized the Caucasus Military Horseman Training School in 1932 and was appointed to command of the 1st Lida Military Training Squadron, which was placed under the Polish 19th Infantry Division in 1937. By 1938, Pilecki received the Silver Cross of Merit for his activism. So in the years leading up to World War II, he not only established his family, he established his community. Everything that he did, building up military training schools, everything was designed around the idea of his Polish independence. That was everything to him. So he spent his entire life working towards that. But this peace and this era, well, we know that it did not last long. It did not necessarily end well. Despite Hitler's promises at Munich and the Anglo-French guarantees to defend Czechoslovakia, the Germans dismantled the Czechoslovak state in March of 1939. Britain and France responded by guaranteeing the independence of the Polish state, but that did not deter Hitler. He was determined not to be dissuaded from war by either threats or simply concessions. And on April 28, 1939, he announced Germany's withdrawal from the non-aggression pact that was signed with Poland over just five years earlier. Hitler went on to negotiate a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union in August of 1939. The German-Soviet pact, which secretly provided for Poland to be divided between the two powers, enabled Germany to attack Poland without fearing of Soviet intervention. Thus, the invasion began. On September 1st, 1939... Germany invaded Poland. Now, to justify their action, uh, Nazi propagandists had accused Poland of persecuting ethnic Germans that were living in Poland. They basically did this everywhere because the idea of Germany, of the Nazis, was the German superstate. The initial uh, annexing and dismantling of Czechoslovakia was for the Sudetenland. The Sudetenland was the area that was predominantly occupied by mostly ethnic Germans. And to be fair, at that time, most of those, uh, like, Germans of the Sudetenland wanted to be part of Germany. They did. But in many other places, Germany just justified war. And that is what they did. They also falsely claimed that Poland was planning, with its allies Great Britain and France, to encircle and then dismember Germany. The SS, in collusion with the German military, staged a phony attack on a German radio station, and the Germans falsely accused the Poles of this attack. This is something that in warfare is called a false flag attack. You see the same kind of thing of people on the internet, of like someone creating a fake account, going in, posting something really racist or inflammatory or something along those lines, like just something really bad, and then they send a picture to the media going like, oh my god, look at what's happening with this place, we need to get this shut down, because it's filled with horrible people. So that exact same thing happened, but with bombs, and that's called a false flag. Germany launched a surprise attack then at the dawn of September 1st, 1939 with an advance force consisting of more than 2,000 tanks, supported by nearly 900 bombers and over 400 fighter planes. In all, Germany deployed 60 divisions of nearly one and a half million men in the invasion. From East Prussia and Germany in the north and Silesia and Slovakia in the south, German units quickly broke through the Polish defenses along the border and advanced on Warsaw in a massive encirclement attack. Poland mobilized late, and political considerations forced its army into a disadvantageous deployment. The Polish army also lacked modern arms and equipment and had few armored and motorized units. They could deploy little more than 300 planes, 
most of which the Luftwaffe destroyed in the first few days of the invasion. Like, I want you to think about this, and this is a story that I want to cover. Poland at this time, its armored divisions were still largely composed of cavalry. So there is actually a story of Polish cavalrymen charging tanks on horseback. And that is a thing that they did. This is really sad. Yeah, it, it really, it's that's the thing, what happens. Bumming me out on a Sunday afternoon. Well, it's going to get more so. Great. Despite fighting tenaciously and inflicting serious casualties on the Germans, the Polish army was defeated within weeks. The world adopted a new term to describe Germany's successful war tactic. Horrible. Blitzkrieg. The Lightning War. The tactic consisted of staging a surprise attack with massive concentrated forces and fast-moving armored units supported by overwhelming air power. The idea was to completely penetrate and circle and crush your opponents before they even knew what was happening. If we trace Politsky's role in this conflict, then we see that he mobilized as part of a cavalry platoon uh, on the 26th of August, 1939. He was assigned to the 19th Infantry Division, and his unit took part in heavy fighting against the advancing Germans during the invasion. The 19th Division was almost completely destroyed following a clash with German forces on the night of the 5th to 6th of December. Not, sep not December, September, at which, the bat which was the Battle of Pietrogo-Trybulanski. Its remains were incorporated into the 41st Infantry Division, which was withdrawn to the southeast towards Lowell and the Romanian Bridgehead. Now, I say Romanian Bridgehead because if you know anything with history, Romania ended up joining the Axis and siding with Germany. But at the time, Romania was not yet a member of the Axis. Or Axis. Axis. Poletsky had served as a second divisional in command of this cavalry detachment under Major Jan Werlodowitz. He and his men destroyed seven German tanks, they shot down one aircraft, and they destroyed two more on the ground. But on the 17th of September, the Soviets invaded eastern Poland, which was worsening an already really desperate situation. And at the moment that this happened, the Polish government fled the country. After heavy shelling and bombing, Warsaw surrendered to the Germans on September 27, 1939. And in accordance with the secret pro uh, protocol to their non-aggression pact, Germany and the Soviet Union partitioned Poland on September 29, 1939. The demarcation line was along the Bug River, the last official resistance of the Polish units ending on October 6th. Which, this is actually a really sad point there, and the world knew exactly what the Soviets were doing. But the justification that the Soviets were using was that, oh, the Polish state is collapsing. We're not invading Poland. We are taking control to make sure that the state does not collapse and that its people does not suffer. And in the process of doing so, they occupied it and annexed it because the Poles could not take care of themselves. So the Soviets would do it for them, which, yeah, that very, very stupid Reasoning, and no one believed it, obviously, but that's what they said. When the 41st Infantry Division suffered a fatal clash near Chelm in the second half of September 1939, Polecki did not follow suit of his comrades, and he refused to flee to Hungary. He had no intention of laying down his arms, though. On October 17, 1939, he took part in partisan warfare. His unit got disbanded near the village of Morty. And initially, Polecki had a plan to return to Sukarutz. He eventually rested at his in-laws in Ostro-Moskowitska. And from there, he made his way to Warsaw on November 1st, 1939, living under the false identity of a man by the name of Thomas Serafinsky. 
Furthermore, Polecki was active in creating the secret Polish army, the Tanja Army Polska, or TAP, which was a national resistant movement based on Christian values and non-affiliated to any pre-war political wing. So it wasn't associated with the communists or the fascists or anything. It was just its own political identity for it here. Now, he coined the name of this organization headed by Major Jan... Uh, again, this isn't going to be me pronouncing it. I just want you to see the name here. I have this in my notes. Like, look at this. Lordarkowitz? 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 I can't even begin to attempt that. I know. And that's why I feel bad in saying this for it here. But I'm going to call him Major Jan. So that's what I'm going to say for it here. When Major, he, so he, this organization was headed by Major Jan, and he also became its chief of staff and later its chief inspector. Polecki demonstrated a full commitment to the organization. He got it expanded to about 20,000 members, while its range covered cities from towns like Warsaw, Lublin, Krakow, Radom, and Sietz. And he also distributed clandestine press. So this was, if, you, you know the French resistance yes. in World War II. This was the Polish resistance, effectively, which... These two resistance groups are arguably the most famous in terms of brutality for what it is that they had to go through. So Polecki sought to merge the secret Polish army and the home army, which the home army was the force slash government that was in control technically by the Polish government in exile. But this was an idea that was strongly rebuffed by Major Jan. The Army Krajowa, which was, that's the Polish pronunciation here, abbreviated AK, or Home Army, was the dominant Polish resistance movement in World War II in German-occupied Poland. It had been formed in February of 1942 from the Zewitsk Pawłaki which is the Union for Armed Struggle. Over the next two years, it absorbed most other Polish underground forces, and as I said, it was loyal to the Polish government in exile and constituted the armed wing of what would be known as the Polish underground state. Now, in 1939 and early 1940, some TAP members were arrested by the Germans. In response to these, in August 1940, Major Jan called a meeting, suggesting that a TAP member infiltrate Auschwitz, and Politsky was urged to be that person. Now, two backstories exist purporting to explain how Poletsky actually ended up finding himself. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. In Auschwitz, which was the horrible concentration camp that is famous to this day for... Well, it's horror, extermination, and cruelty. In one version, he deliberately volunteered to allow himself to be captured by the occupying Germans in one of their Warsaw Street roundups in order to infiltrate the camp. In the second version, he was caught in the apartment of a woman by the name of Eleonora Ostrowska, which was at Lilak Wujowska Poliecko, which was Polish Army Street, and along with 1,700 other prisoners between the 21st and 22nd of September 1940, 
he reached Auschwitz, where, under his secret identity of his name, Serafinsky, he was assigned the prisoner number 4859. Now, you might recognize that. This is actually the title of a song by Sabaton, which, if you've not listened to it, I highly recommend that you do so, as it tells its story, and it is fantastic. But it is an incredibly dark and sad song for it as well. You probably remember this. We skipped it multiple times here because you just you did not want to listen to it. It was so sad. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so while working at Auschwitz, Polecki organized an underground military organization called ZOW, Z-O-W. Its tasks were to better inmate morale, provide news from the outside, distribute extra food and clothing to its members, and also set up intelligence networks and train detachments to take over the camp in the event of a relief attack. Now, Zhao was organized as secret cells, each of which contained five members. At the time of Polecki's internment, Auschwitz was a concentration camp that was really only designed to hold political prisoners from Poland. Like, we, we think about a lot of the concentration camps and we think, oh, these concentration camps in World War II were camps of extermination. They really weren't until the middle to end of the war. The concentration camps primarily in the beginning were a means of, depending on where you went, somewhere to put political prisoners, somewhere to send war prisoners, uh, somewhere to send, say, non-desirables. And these non-desirables are the ones that really had started to go into extermination for it here, but largely they were being used specifically for slave labor. So these concentration camps were pseudo-factories that would be pumping out ammunition and supplies that the German military needed. So the peoples that they conquered, they sent to these camps, enslaved them, and made them produce equipment for the German war machine. So his reports describe the early experiments that were conducted on Soviet prisoners of war, as an example. Because if you recall, even though Poland was divided between the Soviet Union and the Germans, and they had a non-aggression pact, Germany betrayed them in 1941 and launched a surprise attack against the Soviets. So he, again, he described these early experiments that were conducted on Soviet prisoners of war who were murdered with poisonous gas. This laid the foundations for the mass murder of Jews that were purpose-built gas chambers and the crematoria. Polecki described the pain that was suffered by the Roma and the Sinti prisoners that were undergoing sterilization experiments against their will. Many died from these injuries. Because one of the initial ideas that the Germans had was, yes, we're going to wipe these people out, but it's not going to be gassed or anything like that. What they're going to do is stop them from being able to breed like livestock. They would sterilize them so that they would be incapable of having children. And this chemical castration and other things that they did to them, for many of them, it just killed them outright. They were experimenting in all kinds of different ways that they could use to stop them from breeding like pests. I know, this is making you very uncomfortable. I know I'm looking at you for it here, but that's... That's literally what this is. This is this is history. That's something that happened. Polecki quickly found fellow members of the Polish underground, and he began to create a secret organization at Auschwitz, as I said. But this organization ran at great risk. These guys built a radio transmitter out of smuggled parts. And through this transmitter, Polecki had reported on camp conditions and the number of deaths at the risk of being discovery. Or, <laughs> he reported them at the risk of being discovered. But this risk was really high. And it got to the point that 
they had to stop. Like they, there was no way that they could continue any further because there was a ridiculously high chance that they would get caught and they would all be put to death. Now, Polecki's bravery and his willpower cannot be overstated. In his report, he describes the hunger as the hardest battle of his life. He was starving. He harbored doubts during his stays in this lice-ridden hospital ward that he worked at, suffering from pneumonia, typhus, and all kinds of other diseases. He was overwhelmed by his mission, but he refused to admit it to his colleagues, just in case that it damaged their morale. He could not show any sign of weakness in front of them. Now, initially, Pletsky's organization took a strong stance against escape attempts. They did, not anyone, they did not want anyone to try and escape. Rather, they wanted to band together so they could eventually try to take over the camp. But this reason is not because, oh, they wanted safety in numbers. It was because the Germans practiced group punishment. And this is something that we, we did talk about here, which was inflicted on any inmates that were left behind. So if an inmate escaped... Any inmates that were their bunkmates or anything along those lines would be tortured and put to death because they didn't report any suspicious activity about this person trying to escape. And they didn't believe that no one would just not know. So this was a stance that they gave specifically to stop people from trying to escape. But once group punishment was abandoned, the organization did actively assist escapees. For example... On one such occasion, Pletsky gave up his own planned escape route through the sewers to an inmate that was in more imminent danger, like a guy who was basically he was about to be put to death. So he had to give him his information to escape. Now, Pletsky did eventually escape in April of 1943. Key members of his organization had been shipped to other camps, and Pletsky's transfer was imminent. Pletsky and his two companions had only one night to carry out this complicated plan that they had, and failure that would result in public execution by hanging. On the night of 26th of April, 1943, Pletsky was assigned to a night shift at the camp bakery outside the fence, where he and two comrades were manning, uh, had managed to force it open through a metal door. They left the SS guards in the woodshed barricaded from the outside, and before escaping, they cut an alarm wire. Once they were out, they left the, and went east, and the three escapees journeyed for over 100 kilometers on foot before they could reach any sense of relative safety. Or relative safety. I apologize. It took a full week, and when making his way to Warsaw, Pletsky was shot by a German patrol that they had encountered, initially at the uh, Niepolimitz Forest. Pletsky and his companions made a short stop also in Bochinia, where he came into contact with a local chapter of his home army. And this is, this is a really funny little tidbit for you here. As luck would have it, one of its leaders was actually the real Thomas Sedefinsky, the very same guy that he was pretending to be while at Auschwitz, who he was there under the codename of Lisola, and he had lived in Wissenitz. And again, this was the identity of the guy that Polensky had actually stolen <laughs> to be at Auschwitz, because supposedly this guy was dead. But it turns out he wasn't dead. He was just an underground leader of the resistance. Okay, I... When does this story get happy? It doesn't. Oh, okay, so I'm gonna leave. No, you're not. You're gonna sit here. And leave? No, you're gonna listen. No. You're gonna listen. Okay. Polensky rested at a colleague's parents' home before visiting the nearby member of uh, the home army. And in June of 1943, in Neuwinitz, Polensky drafted an initial report of the situation in Auschwitz. It was buried at the farm where he was staying, and it was actually only revealed much later after his death. 
In August of 1943, back in Warsaw, Pilecki started preparing Witthold's report, or Report W, which focused on the Auschwitz underground. It covered three main topics, the ZOW and its members, Pilecki's experiences, and to a lesser extent, the extermination of prisoners, including Jews. Pilecki's intent in writing it was to try and persuade the home army to come and liberate the camp's prisoners. However, the home army command rejected his proposal since the camp's resistance lacked basic fighting equipment. They didn't have anything. Even if the initial attack was successful, the resistance would have lacked sufficient transport capabilities. They wouldn't have had any supplies. They had no shelter. They literally had nothing that they would need in order to take care of the rescued inmates. After three and a half months, no action was taken by the army to liberate Auschwitz. They did nothing to try and help. Pilecki thus decided to go back to Warsaw. Later, he was requested he requested a transfer to the Second Intelligence Department at Kedwu. Kedwu, 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 Kedwi, Kedwu, Kedwu. Again with the names. I detract from this, and this is where it gets really, really sad for it here. Because we're talking about a subject that is incredibly heavy, and yet this is something that I can't pronounce half the names in there, but I will try. I'm gonna say Ked. The department at KED, which was a unit that, constru- uh, that conducted active and passive sabotage, propaganda, and armed operations against German forces. While at KED, Pilecki took the name Chameleon, and that is where he got a job as a deputy commander-in-chief. He also managed to come in contact with Lieutenant Colonel Jan, uh, who he had reported the situation in Auschwitz to and directed Pilecki to Major Karol Jomolski, uh, Zygmunt, to whom he submitted the plan for an uprising inside the camp. He drew up a report on the military underground organization at Auschwitz, and he also distributed home army financial aid to the families of Auschwitz and Majinik inmates. On February of 23rd, 1944, Witold Pilecki was promoted to captain from, with seniority on November 11th, 1943. He drafted up a list of uh, Volksdeutsch, which if you don't know what that is, is uh, Volksdeutsch are German-origin peoples that were affiliated with the Nazis. Effectively, what this is, is that when the Germans took over Poland, they deported a lot of Polish people, rounded them up in camps, and they flooded it with Germans to Germanize the region and population. So they removed its inhabitants and tried to Germanize everything. And there were some people of semi-like Pol- or not Polish German descent that then effectively tried to um, work with the Germans as sympathizers, collaborators, this kind of thing. And these people were then referred to as Volksdeutsch. And these were other traitors that were sentenced to death by vir- uh, well by virtue of this list. Any people that were found like this, Poland did not take that stuff laying down. In the spring of 1944, the Colonel Emil August Fieldorf assigned Pilecki to create a secret anti-communist organization, or NIE, which was a double-conspired civilian and military resistance organization within the Home Army, tasked with replacing it once the Germans retreated from Poland and the Red Army entered the country. Its purpose was to devise combat operations, which you're going to wonder, okay, why have they done this? Like, what is the reason? Well, the Soviets already invaded Poland once, The Soviets were not coming to Poland as liberators or saviors like some people hoped. So even in the midst of fighting against German occupation, they were also trying to sow the seeds for anti-communist revolutionaries and defenses because as soon as the Germans were kicked out, the Soviets were coming right back in to take over everything. 
Which they did. They did. There's actually the story for it here in the Warsaw Uprising, which was the failed uprising to try and liberate Warsaw from German occupation. The Soviets sat outside the border of Warsaw, watching the people starve and get shot, doing absolutely nothing to help them. Because the more resistance fighters that died, the less that there would be there in order to resist the, uh, the Soviets. Remember when I asked you to cover more serious topics on your podcast? Yeah. I didn't mean... I, I was just saying maybe we didn't talk about potatoes or ferrets. I didn't mean this. It gets worse. Stop! <laughs> and this, this, we're not even going into the details. We're talking about the heroics and bravery of one person. This is not even talking about the horrors of things that were actually experienced. That's good, because I don't want to actually hear them right now. So in regards to that Warsaw Uprising... When it broke out on the 1st of August, 1944, Pilecki volunteered for service with Ked's Chobre II Battalion. And initially, he served as a common soldier in the northern city center without revealing his rank to his superiors. After many of the officers were killed in the early days of the uprising, Pilecki revealed his true identity and accepted command of the 1st Warsawianka Company, which was deployed in Warsaw's Sormitsk, which was the downtown district. After the fail of, failing of the uprising... He was captured and then taken prisoner by the Germans. He survived until liberation in 1945 at Olfag 7A in Murnau, Bavaria. During his time in prison, he earned the nickname Daddy from the younger inmates, who he actually looked after and took care of. When the camps were liberated at the end of the war, Pilecki was sent to Italy, where he joined the Polish armed forces. While there, he wrote a comprehensive report on his time in Auschwitz, now known as Witold's Report. Despite his relative safety in Italy, Pilecki returned once again to Warsaw to gather intelligence on the newly established Polish Communist government. The Nazis had been overthrown, but also the Polish government in exile was as well. To Pilecki and the home army, Poland was still not free. It was subservient to its Soviet, and I'm going to use air quotes on this, liberators. He arrived in Warsaw on December 8th, 1945, where he founded an organization whose members were his fellows in Auschwitz, the secret Polish army and the home army. Polecki gathered intelligence to hand over to the Polish Second Corps, but he had no intention of fighting then at that point. Nonetheless, he was ordered to leave Poland and return to Italy. He refused arguing that he was unable to find a substitute for his undercover work. Pilecki put all of his efforts into reestablishing contact with his former comrades. He also asked his wife and children to flee the country. He took an order from General Władysław Anders trying to pass the instructions to some existing partisan units to disband and refrain from any sabotage. Pilecki smuggled out brief reports and photos to Italy, and they contained some information from Captain Wachlaw Aklimowicz. 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 I feel like I'm about to say a Harry Potter spell. And again, this is not detracting from the horror of what it is that I'm describing. It's just, again, going back to the names. Aklimowitz, who was a former member of the National Radical Camp, a Bolsnaro Radicalini, ONR, and an employee of the Ministry of Public Security who reported on criminal activity of the communist police. Other reports concerned foreign trade, schooling, and scouting. General Kamiers Wisniewski, who was the chief of staff of the 2nd Corps, greenlighted Pilecki to go ahead with his intelligence activity inside the country by gathering information on former 2nd Corps soldiers who suffered persecution 
and decided to return to Poland and plan transit routes westwards. In other words, he was trying to go in and find people of the former Polish military and get ways for them to be able to escape the country because the Soviets were anyone who did not announce themselves as Polish military were captured and executed basically by the uh, the Soviets because they didn't want any military personnel who would be able to resist them and those who announced their presence and gave themselves up to the Soviets were treated more leniently because they were seen as possibly collaborators that could be working with them. This did not work. He was arrested on May 8th, 1947, and was thrown in a Makatau jail. While he was interrogated, Polesky sought to claim full responsibility of what any of the anti-communist underground movement was doing. Politsky's interrogation was personally supervised by Joseph Rosnitsky, who headed the investigative bureau at the Ministry of Public Security. The captain was accused of spying. Politsky refused any charges from what Rosinski had claimed. He claimed that Politsky staged a plot to try and kill senior police officers. In prison, he was tortured. His nails were torn off. Yeah. His legs were crushed. His testicles were crushed. He was stuffed onto the legs of a chair and beaten. His Auschwitz accounts did not include the case file. And it is worth adding that Politsky's testimony is incredibly shocking. Like, and just, it goes into way more detail about all this. Politsky stood an unfair trial on March 3rd, 1948. The captain pleaded not guilty to spying and staging a plot to kill key figures of the Polish police. He didn't also did not confirm that he reaped some benefits from allegedly working as a foreign spy. But he did own up to carrying illegal firearms, saying that it was hidden at the time of the Warsaw Uprising. He claimed responsibility for not having registered as a military person uh, upon his arrival in the country, which was compulsory, as I said, and using false identity papers as Roman Gierski. But the trial was a sham. Politsky was not allowed to testify or defend himself, and there were no defending witnesses. On May 15th, 1948, Politsky was sentenced to death. He was deprived of public and civil rights, and his property was forfeited and seized by the state treasury. General Anders sought to help Politsky by publishing his Auschwitz memoirs to inform the outside world of what a hero he was, but he saw nothing but indifference. No one seemed to care. Politsky's family and Auschwitz survivors tried to help him by pleading for help from the Prime Minister, uh, Josef Serenwitsk, who was a former Auschwitz inmate. These pleas for pardon were also written by Politsky himself, both to him and President Boleslaw Berut, were futile. They did nothing. We told Politsky, a veteran of two world wars and a Polish-Soviet war, he was awarded with Poland's highest honors, an Auschwitz volunteer, a founder of an underground resistance organization in camp, a Warsaw Uprising veteran, a prisoner of war in Lansdorf and Murnau, home army officer, Polish Second Corps officer in Italy, one of the most venerated figures in World War II and in general. And on May 25th, 1948, at 9.30 p.m., he was shot in the back of the head by communists. And that is where his story ended. For years, his children were abused and referred to as traitors because no one knew the true story of Witold. It was not until October 1st, 
1990 that Pilecki was finally exonerated posthumously and distinguished for his actions during World War II. Much of the information that we had came from classified documents that were gradually unraveled from the Soviets. In 1995, he received posthumously the Order of Polonia Restuccia, and in 2006, he was awarded the Order of the White Eagle, the highest Polish decoration. On September 5th, 2013, Pilecki was posthumously promoted to the rank of colonel in the Polish army. All of this occurring over half a century past his death. I'm traumatized. I literally want to cry. Yeah. So thanks for the history lesson. You're welcome. Many people have been requesting this, and we will definitely cover more things like this in the future for different stories. I like fun things. I like talking about all the crazy little things from potatoes to ferrets. But history is not clean. It's not always funny. It's not always nice. In fact, the majority of it really is not. But it's a story that needs to be told because otherwise we are doomed to repeat the same mistakes of our predecessors. And that is where I'm going to leave you all today. Thank you so much for listening here on the podcast. I will see you all here next time. And hey, don't forget to leave us a review. Let us know what it is that you think. And goodbye. Thank you. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.